right, good morning, everyone. I'm Nate Wagner. I was just talking and praying. <laughs> I didn't say who I was. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. Um, yeah, it's really good to be with you all this morning. We are finishing up our little mini-series on renewing, renew, looking at the means of grace that God uses to sanctify his people, to grow them, to nourish them, to bring them to himself. And we are finishing the series with prayer. And prayer is not actually technically a means of grace, but it's infused throughout everything. So it's in our rest and our worship. It should accompany the word and the sacraments. And it's something that we're going to be doing until we die as Christians. And it's also something that's really complicated. It's really complicated. I have a complicated relationship with prayer because it's kind of awkward to talk to somebody who's not there or you can't see. And so I just want to acknowledge that from the beginning, that there's a huge kind of cloud that often accompanies prayer for people. And out of all of these different means of grace, this might be the one that we're going to feel the guiltiest about. And it's the one that we probably pretend like we do a lot more than we actually do because we know that we should. And so I just want to acknowledge all of that up front. And I also want to kind of build a little bit of tension because this is probably something that you think in the dark recesses of your mind but you won't actually acknowledge, because that's how I am, that when we pray, our faith is being put to the test. John Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. That sounds really nice, until I ask myself, well, what does it mean then if I'm not praying? It means that I'm doubting. It means that there is some unbelief in me when I choose not to pray, when I choose to do something else instead of praying. And yet there's an experience. Part of being human and living in this world is this tension that we experience with prayer. And we're going to be in Ephesians. We're kind of going to dive into the deep end of prayer, and it's going to be overwhelming. But in order to frame this passage in Ephesians, which is really magnificent, and lofty, and dizzying, I want to actually first talk a little bit about Job, because Job was a man of prayer. Specifically, I want to talk about one prayer in particular in Job, and it's found in Job 3. And this is after Job has just lost everything, after he's lost his entire family, all of his material wealth and possessions. He's lost his health, He's lost his sleep. He's lost his appetite. He is the most miserable creature on earth. And his friends come, and they see his misery, and all they can do is just sit in it with him for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, Job cries out, and he prays. He laments. He pours out his soul to God. He's asking questions that you and I couldn't help but ask, like, why has this happened? Why is it better that I love you, and yet this is what it's gotten me? All of this pain, this suffering. Where are you, God? 
I thought you were just. I thought you were good. I thought you were powerful. Where are you? And that's chapter 3 of the book of Job. And if you're reading Job, you probably get really frustrated about halfway through because the answer to that prayer is Job's friends being miserable comforters over and over and over again. And so as you're reading Job, it's like the effect is, oh, this is God's answer to Job's prayer. These three doofuses who don't know how to have compassion, who don't actually understand the questions that Job is asking because they haven't suffered themselves. And so as you're reading Job, there's like this expanse. There's this really huge amount of materials, like 30 chapters that you're reading through that's just these miserable comforters and Job responding and throwing up his arms. Where is God? And it takes 30-some chapters before God answers. And so as you're reading, that feels like a really long time, even though it's not really. And the effect is supposed to be that sometimes when we pray, the answer is not readily apparent to us. We don't see how God is answering the prayer. And so we question, does God hear us? What's the point of this? Is this just some kind of like psychological trick? Is it kind of like another version of self-help where it's like I pray because it actually is good for me? Or is there anyone on the other end of the line? Anybody who cares? Anybody who can do anything about what I'm asking for? And those are honest questions. This, those questions, those are why we don't pray so often. Because we're human. Because the answer of an infinite God blows our categories. Because we don't even know what questions to ask of our experience, of our life. And yet, Jesus tells us to pray. And he shows us how to pray. And so what we're going to see today in Ephesians is that prayer produces inheritance. Prayer produces inheritance. And that's an important concept because it shows you what actually happens when we pray. Prayer isn't just talking. It is talking to God. But it's actually God doing something and producing something through the conversation, through our dialogue. And so we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And in this, um, in this section, we're going to see how prayer produces inheritance by first understanding who God is. We have to understand who we're praying to. Prayer by itself doesn't do anything. It's only because of who it's to that there's any power in it. So we're going to look at who God is, and then we're also going to look at what should we ask for? What should our prayers be filled with? as we pray. And that, again, will help us see what our inheritance is. So you can turn with me. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please pray with me. Father, these words are hard to understand. They sound really good. They sound very spiritual. They sound like things that we should want. But yet, Lord, if we're honest and we look at our lives, at times they bounce off. At times they, see, they seem to be disconnected from our real life. And so, Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would be receptive to these words this morning, that we would learn from them, that they would transform us, that they would show us how you want us to speak to you, how you desire to know our hearts, how you desire to show us what you want for us. God, we need your help this morning by your spirit to do this. We ask that you would join us in the name of Christ. Amen. So who are we speaking to? Who is it that we are speaking to when we pray? Who is God. And you see Paul rooting his prayer for the church in Ephesus in this kind of like short reflection on who he's addressing. And he addresses God in two different ways. At the very beginning in verse 17, he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. What do those mean? Is that just like Paul kind of like using spiritual filler language? No, it's not. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ is very recognizable, especially for people who are steeped in the Old Testament, where God was often referred to as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that is referring to him as the covenantal God, the God who has revealed himself and partnered to a people. So he has committed and promised himself to a people. That's what it means to be in covenant with them. And so what Paul is doing is he's reminding that as we address God, we are addressing God in the context of covenant, in the context of promise. And that's why we can talk to him, is because he is our father, because covenants make families. He has brought us into his family through the fulfillment of the covenant that he made with Abraham that came through Isaac and Jacob and is now mediated through Jesus Christ. And that is why he's saying he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That For some of you, you're like, 
how can, but Jesus is God, and so how is that, like, what's going on here? And he's, he's talking specifically to the work of Jesus in his incarnation to become the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, to become the fulfillment of who Adam was supposed to be, God's faithful covenantal partner. And so what he's doing is he's showing us that we can only come to God through Christ. We can only come to God through Christ because Christ has fulfilled the covenant. And so when you're praying outside of faith in Christ, you're not praying to this God. We can only approach God through Christ. So there's weight to it. There, there is an exclusivity that accompanies our claims to be God's covenant people. And it's because Jesus is the only one who is able to perfectly fulfill the requirements to live a sinless life, who has a perfect nature that is not in rebellion to God. And so we join him in prayer. We come to prayer to the God of Jesus, our Lord. And so he's covenantal. And that means we get to refer to him as Father. And this is the second title of who God is. We get to refer to him as Father. There's a parental relationship that alludes to our relationship to God now when we are found in Christ. But this description of God as Father of glory it has in it, it's loaded with tension because there's a familiarity that being a, that parent-child relationship has, but the father of glory, if you think about that for a minute, let's unpack that. What does it mean that God is the father of glory? Let's think about the son because Psalm 19 or 8, one of them, tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8, that's it. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. The sun's in heaven. It's a declaration of the glory of God. It was just 80 degrees the other day, and everybody was out, like, oh, soaking in the sun. They were soaking in the warmth. The declaration of God's glory that's the sun blessing the earth, shining goodness down on it, warming it. But it's also something else. The sun is many millions of miles away. And we have to be this far away from it just not to be completely consumed and incinerated by it. And that sun is just a declaration of the glory. God is the source of that glory. That's how magnificent he is. That's how huge he is. That's how powerful he is. Is He is the source of the most glorious things that just whisper about his glory. It's mind-bending. And so for Paul to address a prayer to the Father of glory, he's kind of insinuating that he's coming into the Father's presence 
and presenting what he's asking for. And this is, this is why sometimes we don't pray. It's because we don't feel worthy. Like, God probably has better things to do. He's so glorious. And so t- sometimes we just keep our distance. Sometimes we don't think about his glory enough, and we just kind of wander in. And we actually aren't really stopping and considering who it is that we're talking to. Think about the most glorious person, human person, that you can think of, the most powerful, the one you admire the most. Maybe it's somebody you don't know. Now imagine that you had the ability to have a five-minute conversation with that person. You would probably... Think about that conversation. You would probably come prepared for that conversation. You would probably anticipate it. Right? That's what we do when we have a meaningful conversation with someone who is glorious. We get ready for it. We have a little bit of like feeling like, oh, I don't know if I really belong here. It'd be like going into the West Wing and having a conversation with the president. It's like you might think twice about kind of like the certainty of what you're about to say because there's immense power at play. And that's what it means to come into the presence of the Father of glory and to start asking him for things. Okay. But prayer produces inheritance. So we can't just avoid it. We can't just like pretend that we're not called into it. Instead, what we need is we need actually the word to inform us about how to come to God. We need the word to teach us what God wants us to ask him. And that's the rest of this. um, The rest of this passage is really about what Paul is asking God for on behalf of the Ephesians. Now, the church in Ephesus um, was <laughs> hot and cold. They, on one hand, um, had a lot of fruit. They demonstrated the power of God because you had Jew and Gentile in a very strong and powerful way, two people groups who hated each other, united in the same body, and they were trying to work out what that looked like and what it meant. But they were also full of quarreling. Paul entrusted Timothy to that church. Timothy was kind of like Paul's most treasured apprentice. And so he gave the church of Ephesus Timothy as their pastor. And they chewed him up and spit him out. They ruined his physical health because of all the fighting, all of the quarrels, all of the just mess that was there. And so... Paul had a lot of things that he probably could have asked God for. Like, he could have asked for very practical things, that the church in Ephesus would stop hating each other, that they would have some humility. Maybe for um, specific people to have their issues resolved. But this is what he asks for. This is what he wants. This is what he most deeply wants for this church. And 
so we can learn from it what we should ask for as well. Because this is the Spirit working through Paul. And so when you look at the rest of this passage, looking at the second half of verse 17 and on, it's kind of a jumble. It's like Russian stacking dolls that got like thrown and scattered. It's kind of just like a list of things that goes on and on and on, and it's hard to see how they all relate to each other. So we're going to try and discern some of that. But the first thing that he asks for from God, the Father of glory, is for the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This is the Holy Spirit. It's like a shorthand way of saying the Holy Spirit. God, send your Spirit to these people. So we should ask for the Spirit. And when we ask for the Spirit, when we receive the Spirit, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. That's the next little clause. The eyes of our hearts are enlightened. And then, as our, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that shows up in three different statements. That we would know the hope to which he has called you. That we would know what the, are the riches of Jesus' inheritance in the saints. And that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. So that's how the passage is structured. It centers on the giving of the Spirit. And when we receive the Spirit, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. Well, that's a really interesting way of describing what happens. Did you know that your heart has eyes? Why does he say the eyes of your hearts? The heart in Scripture typically refers to kind of like the control center. So like your inner feeling. It's not a feeling, but it's like your inner, your inner desire, your most deep desire and will. So it's, a tie, it's tied to everything, what you think, what you do, what you want, what you feel is what the heart stands for. And by saying that when you receive the Spirit, we need the eyes of our hearts to be aligned, it means that our hearts are looking elsewhere. Our hearts are looking towards other things. And so this is really practical when we consider prayer. Because it means that we need help. That we can't just go into prayer unthinking. We can't just go into prayer with our heart. We need it to be enlightened. We need our eyes to be looking at God. Because otherwise, we're going to be praying for something that God will never give us. Because he's not going to give us something that is going to bring us farther away from him. He's not going to give us something that is less than what he wants to give us. So as we pray, we're praying for the Spirit and that the Spirit would work in us to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Well, the Spirit does this through the Word. And we're going to get there in a minute. But when you pray... You should be praying from the word because that is the spirit's tool to teaching us about who God is. 
And so if you are the kind of person who's like, well, I don't really need the word because I have the spirit, you don't understand the Bible. The Bible is the spirit's book. And when we talked about the word in this series, we talked about prayer because they go together. And if you're praying in a way that is contrary to the word, you're not in line with the spirit. You're not in step with the spirit. You're in step with your flesh. And that is not a prayer that the Lord will hear. And so we need to pray in such a way that our eyes are being enlightened to what God wants for us. And as we do that, as our eyes are enlightened, we see that there are three things here. There's more, but these, this is a great place to start for us. There are three things that we should be asking God for all the time. And the first one is that we would know the hope to which he has called us. Know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which he has called us? Well, the first thing that we can know about it is that it's future-oriented. We have been called, but we were called to a hope. That means we are in progression. We are in process. We are going somewhere. The hope that we have is that we are being transformed into the people of God, the bride of Christ, and that we will one day inherit everything that has been promised to us. Our hope is the hope of a son looking forward to an inheritance. And that language is actually really crucial to understanding this, parag this paragraph because in verse 14, right before it, you see Paul saying that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of the inheritance. So we have been given the Spirit as kind of a down payment on what we will receive in the future. We're going to talk about what that is in a little bit. But the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, and that is the hope that we have been called to, that we hope for our inheritance. What is in it for you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is in it for you to be a Christian? That doesn't sound like something we should say. It is. Like, what's the benefit? Why should I be a Christian? In some ways, it would be a lot easier if I weren't a Christian. So why should I be a Christian? What's in it for me? Well, you've been given promises from God that are sealed by the Spirit. And so there's something certain in store for you as his people. You've been adopted, yes, we've talked about that. You are a child of God, and if a son, then an heir. You have a future inheritance, and this is your hope, and he's called you to it. The second thing that we should ask for is that we should ask that we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now we're starting to get into um, part of prayer that's doing really interesting work in our souls. 
Because yes, you have been called to a hope. There's something in it for you. But also, you need to know that you are part of an inheritance for Christ. You are part of an inheritance for Christ. It's easy to lose in this passage because Paul uses the first person or the the singular masculine pronoun a lot. He uses his, and it's like, who's he talking about here? But in this passage, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He's talking about Jesus's inheritance. So we have an inheritance, and Jesus has an inheritance. Well, we are Jesus's inheritance, and Jesus is our inheritance. So we get Christ, and Christ gets us. And that are riches. That is a rich inheritance for Christ to get. How can that be? It's because we are a people that are being transformed by his work. And this is where our hope lies. This is the future orientation of it, is that we are connected to him But it's not just you and Jesus. You belong to the saints. You belong to the body of Christ. Think about this, friends. What is it going to look like when the full number of God's people are physically present together at the same time? We don't know the number, but it is more than our minds can fathom. Millions and millions and millions and millions gathered together, made perfect, sinless, spotless, washed clean, all singing praises to Jesus, all basking in his grace, in the power of his work in us. He receives that from his Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. That's your value. You are valued by God so much so that he is giving us to his beloved son. Feel that. That is what we should be praying for. What specifically does it mean how rich that is to belong to that group? How wonderful it's going to be when we see Jesus rewarded. The Spirit is going to bring that to give us an experience of it. We get a foreshadowing of it, but we have to ask for it. God wants us to ask him for it. And then third, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. When we ask God for something, we aren't going to one who is unwilling and unable to do what we ask. He is fully able. His power is immeasurable. We can't ask, we can't even dream of asking for something that would be, on, be beyond his ability to do. That is the power of 
his work towards us who believe. It's an immeasurable greatness. And so when you pray, you start to know that. How could you ever know something that's immeasurable? That's kind of the point. You continuously pursue an experience of that power, of what happens when you ask for these things. You see them start to happen. When you're praying this type of prayer for the church, for you, you start to see and experience the power of God at work in you. And so what you see is that this is, again, how the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. They're not enlightened just by coming to grasp with information, friends. We actually experience it. That's the kind of emphasis of the word know. For us, we just think head knowledge, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a deep relational knowledge. What does this look like? Well, you've probably seen it, but you may not have really stopped to consider how glorious it is. When you are praying for a friend who's just been stuck and ensnared in sin, and maybe you've been meeting and praying with that friend for years, and then they have a small little victory, and then they have another one, and then there's a pattern of godliness that takes place in that person's life over time. You've just witnessed resurrection. You've just witnessed the power of God at work for that person. But God doesn't work on our timeline. But don't be discouraged. Continue to pray for it because you will see, you will experience, you will know the power that is at work on our behalf. And you're going to be taught this continually because Prayer is one of the tools, along with the word, that help us to actually experience this. So as you do this, you're going to grow in it, right? I said we're diving into the deep end. This is the deep end. This is disorienting for all of us. Paul is speaking about spiritual realities that are rich. This is a huge chunk of meat that we're trying to digest, But as you continually do this, prayer and word will help you start to actually chew this. It'll help you to experience it. We will grow in prayer. And so here's what that looks like in community. God cares about our smallest prayers. But sometimes we just don't think big enough. Sometimes the eyes of our hearts are a little bit dim. We're not seeing things clearly. And so we ask each other to pray for things that honestly, they're going to fade. They're not eternal. They're not big enough. We've kind of taken a step down and we say, "Mm, maybe I'll just pray for that because then I don't actually have to trust God. I can pray for something, yeah, that would be nice, but it isn't getting into your heart, into your soul, what your soul longs for. Peel back the layers a little bit. Don't just stay on the superficial externals. 
I could give examples, but I'm afraid to. (laughs) Yes, it's good to pray for some of those things, practical things. I'm not telling us not to. What I'm saying is go past them. You can pray for a girlfriend, but what is deeper than that? What does your soul long for? You can pray for a house, but what is something that's bigger than just a place to live in and that's big enough to live for? Pray for that. Pray for your whole life to revolve around the kingdom. Pray for your sanctification. Pray for faith. Pray for things that you can't imagine happening in your soul. Pray that you would continually be turning into the inheritance of God in the saints. Pray for that. The end of this passage roots all of this in the work of Christ. So we ask all of this according to power. What that means is that we have falsifiable proof that God can do these things. Look at what he roots it in. He worked this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So what that means is that you can go into a hospital and pray for a friend and give them certain hope, even if they are certainly going to die, because God raised Jesus from the dead. You can then go and pray for your country, even though there's not really hopeful signs for your country. Why? Because Jesus has been seated at the right hand, and he is ruling over all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. You can pray with certainty, even when it doesn't make sense. This is a prayer of faith. It's a prayer that is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. It finds its resolution in him. All of our prayers are answered in Christ, right? And this is how prayer produces inheritance. When we are praying in this way, when we are resolving our prayers in Christ, when we're rooting them in Christ, when we receive Christ as the answer for our prayers, listen to what I just said, you're receiving Christ. He's your inheritance. When you are a Christian, you get God. What else do we want? If our hearts are enlightened, we understand that that is more than we can ever fathom. And we are content. We are at rest with that. I think about Job a lot. And I think... One of the things about Job that I wonder is what his inheritance was. And the book of Job, it ends with God coming and talking to Job, and then it ends with God giving Job a bunch of things and restoring him. And it's all really cool. Like, that's great. But it only alluded to how Job's prayer was actually answered. It only alluded to what Job was actually given through his prayer, through crying out to God. And I thought about this in, um, actually during this past 
season of Christmas, as I was reading this, this hit me. And this is Zechariah. And he is a priest, and he's serving kind of like in a division of priests that they always go into the temple and they burn incense and offer sacrifices and prayers to God. And it's like, how many times has he done that, right? And there's kind of like this repetitive, cyclical nature of it. It's like, okay, I'm going to go and do our thing. And like, what happens? I don't know, not much. Over and over and over again. Does God hear? It's the same question that Job is asking. Does he even hear me? Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And he announced the birth of Jesus. Friends, your prayers have been answered in Jesus. The longing of your soul is fulfilled in the answer that Zechariah received on our behalf. It's the answer that Job longed for. Job received Christ a long time later, right? There's a lot of waiting, but he received Christ. And because he received Christ, he received someone who is more righteous than him, who suffered worse than him. And he received a fellowship in that suffering. He looked to Christ and understood him because he had suffered. So that whole time that it seemed like God was being distant, that he was being standoffish, what was actually happening, we know, is that he was waiting patiently for the right time. And so we have that power. We have that fullness of certainty because it's already happened. But we still can identify with Job because we're still waiting. There's still a hope. We've only received the down payment, not the fullness. And so we can pray with Job how long. We can ask God to fulfill his promises to us. But we know that they are fulfilled in Christ. And so prayer produces your inheritance because as you pray, as you delve into your soul, you're going to meet the lover of your soul and you're going to receive him. You're going to grow in knowledge of him. And so when you pray, open your Bibles. And when you open your Bibles, pray. Because this is how God is going to bring his son into your life in real, meaningful, lasting, and powerful ways. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, we're overwhelmed by your promises. We read things that, um, yeah, that feel like have depth to them that we will never exhaust. You've given us treasure that we can't count. You've given us yourself to us. And Lord, we also are wrapped up in something even bigger than that, 
where you have given us to your son. And we are part of how you have chosen, how you have ordained for us to be glorified by glorifying your son. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us, that you would give us the eyes to see, give us hearts that are trusting of you, that are longing for the same thing that you want. And God, turn us into people who are pursuing you, who continually come to you in prayer, who are not timid, who are not also foolish, but that we are actually taught how to pray, that you show us what to pray for. Lord, help us to trust that and pray all